0: Hey guys, this is Pastor Kyle here alongside Pastor Bailey, grateful that you guys have tuned in to our podcast. We trust that what you're about to hear will be beneficial for your day, and we're grateful that you've stopped by to hear what the Lord is doing in Milledgeville. Good morning. As you're taking your seat, turn to Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. As you guys turn there, I'll recap uh, what we've been walking through, obviously Ephesians. um, And we'll be capping off Ephesians here in just a couple of weeks, actually, which is exciting. And uh, we have a lot of exciting things in store in the new year uh, for what we're going to walk through as a church. Uh, But for this morning, again, we'll be in verses 15 through 21 of Ephesians 5. Over the past couple of weeks, we've had the blessing of seeing how a Christian should walk. That's been the theme of Ephesians here lately. Uh, we've seen that they should walk in love. Last week we saw that Christians should walk as children of light. And now this week, per the title of our sermon and really just the thrust of the text, we'll see that Christians should be walking wisely, walking wisely. Our verses, as I was prepping this morning, I saw offer us a practical look at what I kind of think is the uh, base practice and purpose of the Christian walk, as highlighted by Pastor Kyle faithfully last week in verses 10 through 11. I'll read those for us. Verses 10 through 11, Ephesians chapter 5, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them so often we take a look at what the world has to say about being a Christian. We may be prone to adopt the same definition that being a Christian means you go to church, means you tithe, that means you do this, that, and the other, and fail to start at the beginning of the Christian life, which is new life in Christ by God's grace. So I want to recap for us here. In simplest terms, uh, the purpose of the Christian life is to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, uh, you can often think to yourself, maybe even this past week, have been approached with a situation that is maybe outside the confines of Christian liberty, where you've had to ask yourself, would this be pleasing to the Lord? Now, maybe that question's come in other forms. Could I get away with this? This isn't that bad, is it? Right? The question should be, is this pleasing to the Lord? The purpose of the Christian life is to please the Lord. Simply put, the purpose of the Christian life is to please the Lord. There's so much that's implicit in that. I wish we had the time to go through. Uh, Pastor Piper, John Piper, would say that the greatest call of the Christian life is to enjoy the Lord. um, And from that, have the fullness of life, have the most uh, vitality of life, most peaceable living. Scripture would agree. The purpose of the Christian life is to please the Lord. Now, how this is practiced, how this is carried out, is by, pay attention to this, abstaining from and overturning darkness abstaining from and overturning darkness exposing darkness now i want to go ahead and warn you that this message will have some teeth this evening if you look ahead in your brochure bulletin hybrid you'll see one of the questions that i want to leave you guys asking yourself is are you alive in christ and how do you know Are you alive in Christ, and how do you know? It's been my prayer this week um, that you wouldn't, nor that I would not deliver this as a unnecessarily hammering text. But I believe it has something important for us to offer, even for the Christian who is most assured in their salvation, or for the one who may be wondering, or for the one who should be wondering. It's my hope as the Lord certainly worked on me this week, that we would receive what God has to say with all humility and see maybe where the global church, perhaps us as individual members of the church, have failed in abstaining from darkness and exposing it in our own lives. I think it doesn't take long to look at the state of the world and see that it is pretty muddy and it's pretty broken, and that's man's fault. Primarily, the efforts that fall short or go far beyond helping the world and seeing it turn to peace is the church's fault, for good or for worse. I was blessed this week by an episode of a podcast from a a guy named Les Lamphere. You know his name if you watch the Calvinist or Spirit and Truth uh, movies. Um, And he was doing an episode on Christian creators and how throughout the history of the world we see so many famous or rather not famous Christians who make famous things such as Morse code, telecommunication, orphanages, hospitals, at the hands of Christians. And on the other hand, we can see where Christians have fallen short throughout the veins of history as homosexuality is not just accepted but celebrated today, where people will go to bat for someone to not receive the death penalty for killing their daughter and innocent couples, and where abortion is not just tolerated but funded, spread, spread. We can go on down the list. You've often heard that before. This has come from the church, not just abstaining from also not exposing darkness. Baptists get their own knock on this, and it came to mind this week as Baptists have that uh, age-old wives' tale of uh, being alcoholics. That's just an example. It's not true for any of your elders here. I promise. All right, and it's our job to make sure it's not. But that just goes to show Christians for the longest time have done a pretty good job, especially in our parents. I say our parents, mine are sitting here. And their parents' age have done a wonderful job in some aspects of abstaining from darkness. But this has looked like the church developing a new form of monastery of just going out into their own wilderness away from the world because that doesn't require any exposing of their own darkness. And so why am I saying all this? Why is this such a serious text? If you read ahead, It may not seem like that at first glance, but all of that to say, for us to properly execute, understand, and make sure we finish the race well between the purpose and the practice of the Christian life, it requires biblical wisdom. It requires biblical wisdom. So my aim this morning is that we would come away understanding biblical wisdom, wanting biblical wisdom, and then ultimately walking in biblical wisdom, walking wisely. All right, you guys on board with me? All right, buckle in. Go before the Lord and prayer with me again. I would just ask, oftentimes, I know we charge you to pray uh, for yourself and what you need, but um, per the text this morning, I think we all need humility this morning before God's word. So pray for yourself that you would receive what you need, what you need, no matter what you come in here with, no matter where you've been, even if that's salvation, pray you would receive what you need from the Lord this morning. All right. Father, be with us as we come before you this morning. We thank you that we even have the privilege of worshiping you, that we get to gather as a body where so many are being barred from doing so, and so many fall under those who won't lead them in doing so. We just praise you for the opportunity to worship you. I pray that on the other side of the sermon this morning, we would be able to sing more joyfully live more peaceably and more confidently in you, who you are as our Savior. Be with us, Father. Humble us, grant to us salvation for those who need. Please give us repentance and the courage to do so. And above all, give us the humility to be low in the dirt this morning and look up to you, our Father, our Lord, our only hope. We ask all this in your son's name, by your Holy Spirit, and according to your will. Amen. Amen. Read with me to start off here, verses 15 through 17. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. This is what I believe outlines and highlights our call and helps us to understand what biblical wisdom is. Verses 15 through 17. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I want to go ahead and get out in front of this. You may be uh, considering, well, in what instances will I need to understand what the will of the Lord is? I would say for all of them. Every decision you make, you need to know what the will of the Lord is. Now, this falls under different categories, and I I want you guys to hear this and then jot it down and forget it for the rest of the sermon, okay? This isn't a sermon on Christian liberty and where the confines of that are. Now, what Christian liberty is is oftentimes quoted as the boundaries in which you can enjoy God, meaning all the things you can do that scripturally doesn't explicitly denounce. Uh, For example, Scripture does not tell me what color to paint the nursery walls. Abby and I have the freedom to do that. But Scripture does help me understand there is a color I could paint the walls that will help Ezra grow up into some form of manhood, and that color is not pink. It ended up being a light blue. Now, we had the freedom to do pink, but it would not have been wise. See what I'm saying? Now, on the other hand, Scripture also is very clear to us that we are to submit to authorities that he places over us, God places over us, as long as they are not going against the law of God. So for college students here, a popular one is, well, what's so bad with underage drinking? Point blank, God tells you not to. You still exercise biblical wisdom. In that instance, it's just more explicit. This is what I would like to call our common convictions that the church should have globally, meaning the church should stand against injustice. It should stand against abortion full-heartedly but oftentimes it stands more uniformed and more on the same page as to whether or not the pews should have cushions or not, things that simply do not matter, okay? Does that make sense? So biblical wisdom is necessary for every single thing. This morning, the angle we'll be looking at biblical wisdom is how it's necessary for, again, the Christian purpose of living and practice of living. To start with, Christians don't, as children of God, walk according to their personal preference in terms of obedience to God. Christians don't walk according to personal preference. They walk according to Christ-centered convictions. Now, the contrast between these two is one who would easily fall away at the midst of trial and tribulation and one who would press all the more in to their father. We've seen this in the global church in this year, if we haven't. Uh, the Lord's blessed you and you not having turned on the news, gone on Twitter, Facebook, any internet, okay? Those who walk according to personal preference may think they have more freedom in living when the reality is they're just wearing different chains to their own preferences. whether that's how they spend their time and what they do or don't do, oftentimes sacrificing time with the Lord. Or, those who walk in Christ's own conviction understand the necessary hills to die on as Christians and will gladly stand on them. Scripture calls us to this. Scripture leaves little room for Christians to live relatively, meaning there's various truths. And if it works for you, then it works for you. Who am I to tell you otherwise? This is something we've hit on before. To go a little bit deeper with this thought, biblical wisdom for us to understand here as Christians, especially to take a look back at biblical wisdom Is not this ivory towered factor that's confined to the minds that are leading Christian thought. It's just not. All throughout history, we see uh, a guy we quote very often, Charles Spurgeon. take that and work against those who came before him who were faithful brothers, yet kind of perpetuated this uh, higher academia thought life of Christianity that it stayed in the uh, Oxford colleges, it stayed in the Ivies. It was not privy to the common man. Now, Spurgeon pushed back against this with the common man's college, Bible college that was for farmhands plumbers, equivocably to today, for those who had jobs but wanted to know their Lord better and serve him more fully. So biblical wisdom, I want to go ahead and say, is not just for your pastors. Christians, true Christians, don't look at biblical wisdom how the Catholics do. It's not just reserved for the popes and the papacy. There's no mediator necessary between God and his children. Biblical wisdom is allotted to anybody who has a renewed mind, new eyes, and ears to hear, see, read God's word. So biblical wisdom is for all of us, and that's a blessing. But it also means we're on the hook to digest God's word and be biblically wise. It's so like I said at the outset, our efforts are rooted in the promise that biblical wisdom is given to those who seek it, those who ask for it. It's also important for us to understand that biblical wisdom is a sure foundation for us to walk on, not a perch for us to sit in, okay? Biblical, found, biblical wisdom is a sure foundation for us to walk on, to take what we learn, apply it in our lives, not just through discussion with one another, but in how we practically live. Meaning, if we read a text in the Lord's Word on generosity, and does not do us any good nor does it do fellow brothers and sisters any good nor does it do the world any good if all that does is spur us to go sit around a coffee table discussing how we should be generous without ever being generous does that make sense the fullness of that thought would just be uh, making the brother or sister across from you pay for your coffee after sitting down talk about generosity it doesn't make sense So, biblical wisdom gives us legs to walk, and we have to actually use them to walk. Otherwise, we may not be as biblically wise as we think. J.I. Packer is a man who said this, uh, biblical theology does no good until it trickles from the mind to the fingertips. I mean, it doesn't make any difference until it moves our feet, our hands. And being in the church, and being in this church, I know it certainly moves our minds, and it moves our mouths, but I have to pose the challenge. It doesn't move our hands. doesn't move our feet. This is something we've been blessed to talk about in biblical brotherhood and, and smaller groups of, of men is that being a biblical man, for example, is not just telling your wife how much you love her. It's showing it. It's serving her. In the same way, the church does not show its love for God just by talking about how much it loves God, just by showing up and singing songs unto God things we're commanded to do, if there's no follow-up and faithful works that show our love for God, the sharp challenge is we may not love him as much as we sing we do, as much as we say we do. Biblical wisdom helps us see the difference. It gives us legs to walk. Looking at the rest of those verses there, we see a charge from Paul to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. To refer back to the opening, this is something I feel like the global church, and if we're not careful, we can't hear today, to take to mean we walk on eggshells wherever we go. Uh, Thanksgiving wasn't too long ago. Oftentimes, we can take this call from Paul to look carefully and place ourselves at the Thanksgiving table and hear that relative uh, talking about uh, its political season, how uh, God is a problem and how... Capitalism is evil and the church is the villain and are looking carefully as the church may lead us to just think, well, here's not the time and place. I just won't say anything. I don't want to ruffle feathers. Now, if you know me, you know that I'm more prone to ruffle than not. And that's something I've had to grow in and the Lord has certainly pruned me in. But I can tell you, as scripture does, that that is the time to ruffle feathers. Okay? Men who are married and prayerfully will be one day it would be as if you're standing there with somebody you do not know and they spit in your wife's face and you don't do a single thing about it. We'd be more prone to have fisticuffs with a complete stranger than we would to defend our God in those situations. You see what I'm saying? We have to have biblical wisdom to understand that in those situations, we have to go to bat for our God. Not because he's on trial, but because the one who may be slandering him is Kindling his wrath. So we're actually going to bat in defense for our Creator and for their good. Even if they don't leave the conversation changed and salvation, they may leave with common grace of God that they don't run their mouth quite as much and don't kindle as much wrath. That's the church's job. We put ourselves in difficult places and we speak truth. Otherwise the world is just waiting for the flames. So yes, We must look carefully, but that doesn't mean walk on eggshells, nor does it mean we corner ourselves off as the church. It doesn't mean we just stay in our own spot like the monks do. It means we go out. We're already here. We seek the change of our city, like Jeremiah tells us. We seek its welfare. We do this by speaking and having biblical wisdom. Again, that wisdom being what the Lord says is right and wrong. What is holy and unholy. What leads to life? What leads to death? The overarching themes of biblical wisdom. But the call to look carefully isn't about what's around us. It's about ourselves. We need to take proper self-examination before we end up in those situations, like the Thanksgiving dinner, like street evangelism, like our classrooms. Like so many of you have sat in, and I've heard, Jack, we've had so many conversations about the liberal-leaning classrooms, All those instances require us to take stock of ourselves ahead of time and think, what is going to be brought up that I don't know in Scripture? What am I going to have to equip myself with to defend, to not just abstain from darkness, but expose it? Because you all know this, darkness is rampant. It's in the workplace, it's in the classroom, it's in our homes if we're not careful. And we can't just abstain from it, we have to expose it. If we just abstain, then nobody's going to bat. The world's not going to expose its own darkness. It's going to wallow in it. Hence, what's going on. You see? You with me? All right. So yes, we look carefully, but that's not at what's around us. It's not to give us cause to walk gingerly or not walk at all. It's to make sure we understand what we need to have and that we're equipped with the right armor to go out and fight per biblical wisdom. We must know the word of God but not just know it. We must know the word of God, but not just know it. We must look carefully, but not just look. All right? We must love God, but not just sing about it. All these carry a necessary and natural overflowing reaction. If we love God, we'll live unto God. If we look carefully, we'll know what areas we need to patch up. And like we'll see on the tail end of our text this morning, that's looking carefully at one another as well and giving each other the freedom to do so. But we'll get there in a little bit, all right? So that's the best I can do for us in the, in the time is just a segment of the sermon to help us understand biblical wisdom. It's a launching pad. It's a path we walk on. It's not just something that we take and we use to sit on, okay? It's something that gives us legs to walk. Look at verses 18 through 19 with me. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Now, a couple of asides uh, for if you uh, appease me, my conscience. Have you ever wondered what churches should or should not be singing? Yes? God just told you in these verses. Now, What about churches who sing secular songs? They may be more like clubs than churches. Scripture tells us what to sing here in Ephesians. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And spiritual songs aren't accompanied by fog machines. They're accompanied with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We worship God. We don't perform for him. Scripture is very clear about what that will lead us to. Now, my second aside, thank you for appeasing me, is notice here that Scripture says do not get drunk with wine. It does not say do not drink wine. Now, I'm not binding anybody's conscience. If the Lord has convicted you that you must abstain from alcohol, praise God. Do it for his glory and help any other brothers or sisters who want to as well do that as best they can. But never let anybody tell you that it is scriptural to not drink because it's not. All right? It was at the feast, it was at the festivals, Jesus himself did, and it wasn't grape juice. Okay? That was just an aside to help us understand biblical wisdom, that it's not a sin to drink, it's a sin to get drunk, it's a sin to drink improperly. And it's better for us to be filled with spirit than the spirits of the world, than any other form of alcohol. Now, For those who may enjoy the Christian liberty of being able to drink, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're taking more joy and being filled with spirits than the Spirit of God, it may be time to abstain for quite a while. You see what I'm saying? That was my asides. Thank you for appeasing me. The rest of this section, it gives us the eyes to see that we have to want biblical wisdom. Now, you may be thinking, well, of course, I'm a Christian. I'm a son and daughter of God. Of course, I want biblical wisdom. I would say not so fast. Even I myself find myself turning my eyes away from texts of scripture that would put me on the hook to speak out against something just so I don't have to. I do it in my own home. I avoid conversations that may lead to tough growth between Abby and I just so I could rather do the dishes and avoid that and have a more peaceable evening. We're all prone to do this, and we may not want as much biblical wisdom as we think, Because it means we have to give up more sin than we may want to. It means we don't just abstain, it means we expose. So we have to want biblical wisdom. It's not just natural, right? Paul talks about this, why do I do the things I hate, yet not the things I love? This is what he's outlining here. We have to want biblical wisdom. Again, the call to look carefully is not an excuse to be timid and fearful in this, but a charge to walk confidently because of who Christ is, Knowing who we are, those two don't come without the other in the Christian life. Oftentimes, though, if we're not careful, we can only look at who we are. Or even if we look at us and Christ, it's in that order. Not looking at Christ, then us. C.S. Lewis has talked about this before, as have many other theologians before him, that we can only know ourselves when we know God, meaning we can only see ourselves properly when we look at God first. I'm sure many of us have fallen prone to doing it the opposite, looking at ourselves and then looking at God. This can lead us to a a series of shame. It can lead us to downtroddenness. It can lead us to hopelessness that has no place in the Christian life. To quote a pastor out in uh, Idaho, Toby Sumter, he says it quite curtly. Oftentimes, when we look at our own sins too much, it can lead to a certain self-loathing and a hidden sense of pride. You're not that important. Christ is. Confess, be forgiven, and move on. Does that make sense? Now, at first you'd be like, well, what? Are, Christ died for me. What do you mean I'm not that important? In a sense, it means you're too important to sit on your hands and, and kick yourself for things Christ already took care of. So the church is freed up. Confess, be forgiven, move on. Well, what about when I stumble again? Repeat the process. God's mercies are new every morning for a reason. It's for us to keep walking. Yes, we'll skin our knees. Yes, we'll fall. But we keep walking. No matter how small or big, pay attention to this, and this is why we have to look carefully and want biblical wisdom. Okay? No matter how small or big a rock is, it will always make ripples when it breaks water. The same way is true for our actions. They never come without consequences, one way or the other. For us as Christians, growth does not just happen. Complacency does not just happen. And this is the thread all throughout Ephesians here is that this is the cause, this is the fruit of what we planted a week, a month, a year ago. That's why we have to want biblical wisdom so we can make sure we are setting ourselves up for increased trust in God and peaceable living. Not just prosperous, but peaceable. That comes from exercising biblical wisdom. It means we have to want it. We don't just get it by osmosis. We have to dig ourselves deep into the word of God and then walk in it. Okay? Look at verses 20 through 21 with me here. 20 through 21. What does all this mean for us as Christians? Maybe in a spot today where you have a better understanding of biblical wisdom than not. And you may even want biblical wisdom so much so that you find yourself not having the time to read as much as you would like because you have to work faithfully, serve faithfully in all these other places. So this may come naturally to you, what we're about to read. Now, on the other hand, you may have come in here with not as full of an understanding of biblical wisdom and maybe not wanting as much as you think you did. So verses 20 and 21 may seem like a foreign concept. On the other hand, altogether, This may all be new. And praise God that you're getting to hear his word. Nevertheless, verses 20 and 21. The result of this Christian living follows. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ahead of this section, I want to say that I'm fully aware of the Christian life is not filled with blissful ignorance and a worldly sense of happy. If you've been walking with the Lord for quite some time, chances are he has refined you through suffering. And that leaves spiritual scars. I'm not ignorant to that, I promise. This comes through sickness, this comes through death. It may even come through new life and opportunity that reminds us of scars we already carry. It comes through anxieties and depressions. It comes in disbelief. It comes in perhaps being hurt by one another in the church. Scripture's call is still true in verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything. I want to free us from a common misunderstanding in the modern church and modern Christianity today. Giving thanks is not always done in a mountaintop, on a mountaintop, rather. It's often done in the valley. All this life, if you look at it properly, is a valley. It's a beautiful one. Nevertheless, it's a valley. Christ is our mountaintop. That's where we're heading. Rather, it's what's coming to us. Giving thanks always does not change based on our circumstances. Reason being our circumstances don't change who Christ is and what he's done for his children. You can go down the list and even pen out your worst fears on the left side of a paper. And on the right side, Scripture will have an answer for every single one of them. And the answer is not hopelessness. It's true hope. It's reminders that our afflictions are light and momentary. Not because of what they are, but because of what outweighs them. It's eternal weight of glory. So please hear me when I say that the Christian life is marked by Giving thanks always it does not mean always having a smile on your face, it means keeping at the forefront of your mind, of your heart, of your mouth, the glory of God, so that when those valleys do have their depths, when we do find ourselves struggling for air without even anything going on, understand the call is still to give thanks, that's your only way out in any situation look back on your own life as you've walked with the Lord, as he's brought you along. You have surely never found your way to hope through disbelief. Right? Never found your way to hope by not worshipping. You found your way to hope and hope again and hope again through worshipping through tears, through praying on bent knee, even when you can't voice words. So I want to make it very clear for us that true Christian life is marked by thanksgiving always for every single thing. Everything. That includes the losses. That includes the hurts, that includes the pain, because God will always replace it with new life in him. As we waste away, we're renewed. The scripture is filled with these beautiful paradoxes, and the Christian responsibility is to give thanks always through everything. Does it make sense? It doesn't have to be with a smile, but it is with full hope and assurance of who God is, what he's done, and what he's promised he is doing and will do. For the Christian, that's enough. It's more than enough. And Paul would tell us elsewhere that it's better, it's more worth, it's richer than everything. Everything. Money, resource, even the answer to the most common problem you may have is knowing God. As we look at how to walk wisely, we have to understand what we may have heard before is that the start of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now we talked about this a little bit in our Sola series and we've talked about this elsewhere and that Luther does a wonderful job explaining that this fear is not as a servant would have of their master just awaiting the next punishment. It's proper fear you would have of the kindest of fathers that we would not want to disappoint him. Because we can grieve his heart with our disobedience. Okay? So when we fear the Lord, we have the beginning. We have the necessary and sole prerequisite, along with salvation, to exercise biblical wisdom. Now, not only is wisdom begun with the fear of the Lord, the proper response then of that fear with biblical wisdom is loving submission. Loving submission. This is salvation. This is Christian salvation, isn't it? We see who God is. We see who we are. We see Christ as mediator, and we lovingly submit because we know nothing is better. Nothing could touch life in Christ, even with all its scars. The burdens aren't so burdensome when Christ has already carried them. The suffering isn't so filled with hope, uh, despair and hopelessness when we saw Christ suffer to the uttermost in every way, spiritually, emotionally, physically, as he was truly man. What this also means for the Christian and for all of creation is that if God made it, he orders it, and he made everything. If God made it, he gets to tell it what to do. Romans 8 is very clear. And he made everything, including one's number of days and how those days are best spent. Now, I got to talk about this with, again, some guys on a wonderful, brisk Saturday morning, As we have to understand the world is under the same covenant of grace as the church. Now, let me tease this out. The world is under the same covenant of grace as the church. The difference is it's in rebellion to that covenant. Okay. Romans 1 is clear. The world knows God through creation, through what he has done, through the grace that he shows them, and even their breath and their supply and their sustenance. They know him. They know him about as much as some in the church might. The difference is they are in rebellion against him. Hence, they're kindling up wrath, and the church, through its obedience and its love for God, is storing up for itself a treasure that is imperishable and will not be touched, even by its own members. It's preserved by Christ. Now, why does this matter? Because it's important for us to remember that there's not much that's different between the church and the world apart from God's grace. That should cause the church to look terribly different from the world. Now, many different thoughts may be popping up about, well, how does the church look different? Well, they manage their time differently to start with, but you can even do that moralistically. You gather somewhere with a group on Sunday, the world does that too, it's called a supermarket, and they come there for sustenance, like the church comes here for sustenance, the difference is it's spiritual and physical, so it's not too terribly different, right, now we know it is, but on the outside, it's really not that different, the church reads a book to be satisfied, the world goes to movies, they all have their niches. Now, what is the biggest difference, the biggest distinctive between the church and the world? We just had our answer in Scripture. And just giving thanks always for everything to God. Giving thanks always for everything to God. I was reading a story this week from R.C. Sproul, late uh, saint, passed on he was talking about one of these classes he was teaching and the biggest thing he could tell, the immediate difference between a mature believer and an immature believer wasn't how much biblical knowledge they had, it wasn't how well they could articulate salvation, it wasn't this, that, or the other, things we might usually chalk it up to it was whether or not they had a grateful heart whether or not they give thanks and not just for being in that class with him not just for the opportunity but for who their God is We have to understand that we drive that distinction with our gratitude. We're on the hook. We can't complain the same way the world does when we go into work. We can't. Are you free to? Absolutely. It will not benefit your soul. We give thanks for provision, even if it comes through jobs we hate. We can't carry on in hopelessness the same way the world will when, su- when suffering comes. The church can't. Not because it's not free to, just because it's not beneficial to your soul. We can't sit for an extended period of time just being okay, not digging into the word of God, seeing what gives us hope. Again, don't hear me wrong. You are absolutely free to do so, but it will not benefit your soul. Is not God's design for you as his child. We drive that distinction between us and the world. Yes, through faithful works, but primarily, first and foremost, our level of gratitude to the one who has set us free. That is the difference. We benefit from the same grace as the world does. The rain falls on us too. it water's the same crops, and those go in the same mouths the same way as the world. The difference gratitude and thanksgiving. Why? Because that's the evidence of salvation in a Christian. And on the flip side of that coin, that's the evidence of the lack thereof in the world. There's no cause for thanksgiving for them. There's every cause for thanksgiving for the Christian. As I was preparing to talk about biblical wisdom, at this mental image that I feel like many in the church may have is that when we hear even the topic of biblical wisdom we think of ourselves being on one side of a bottomless chasm and God being on the other and it's bridged by the narrowest of gates and biblical wisdom is sort of that guide to tell us where not to step lest we fall right? sound familiar? maybe it's just me this is kind of the picture I had of biblical wisdom, that list of do's and don'ts that leads to either a prosperous life or not. It's kind of the mental image I feel like much of the church may have of biblical wisdom. Here's what's important for us, and I say this, and please, even now, ask for the Lord to humble you. If biblical wisdom is simply a list of, of do's and don'ts for a better or best way of living. Not the primary vehicle by what you know, enjoy, and worship, and love God. You may be operating under a false, false gospel of works. That may not be true for any of you. It may be true for someone you know. Or it may be true for some of you. If we look at biblical wisdom as a litmus for what we're supposed to do and not do, as opposed to what, who we are supposed to enjoy, take that mental image again. Biblical wisdom is not just a guide for us between uh, where we are and where God is. Understand the order of Scripture. God is coming back to us, so we're not crossing any bridge. I know the Romans Road illustration pet we don't cross anything God's coming back to us we're building his kingdom where we are by the way he's already with us how do we know that through biblical wisdom where's our source his word the Christian life is marked by giving thanks always not by occasional gratitude Ask yourself this morning, whatever befalls you, whatever you undergo, do you have the spiritual backbone to give thanks through it? Or are you suffering at the hands of occasional gratitude? The Same way the world might. We see it in all our favorite athletes who probably are not walking with the Lord, but they thank Him when they get their awards. Even in hip-hop, they thank Him for blessings. Occasional gratitude It's not a life of thanksgiving. Again, because thanksgiving is often shouted the loudest in the bottom of the deepest, darkest pits. The Christian life is lived to God the Father, not an acknowledgement of Him. There's a difference. Everything about us is lived in light of who our Father is. Unto Him, for His glory. Not in a simple acknowledgement of him. The difference is our jobs, our marriages, our friendships, we see them as leverages for us to enjoy God, not enjoy our spouse, our friends, and everything else, and then acknowledge God being a footnote to our prayers. Now, is it wrong to enjoy your friends, your spouse, and everything else? Not at all. But I'm telling you from a minimal amount of experience in the wife department and 24 years worth in the friend department as you do yourself and your friend your spouse whoever it may be on the other side of that equation a great disservice when you expect to enjoy God through them you can't they don't speak for him Christ has you enjoy them most you enjoy your job you enjoy your life most when you first enjoy God as your father this last point here: the Christian life is lived in the name and work of Christ, our Lord. Not in the name of Christ and our own works. You need to hear this. You need to understand that the Christian life is not a trail that you walk on to get to God. If you are with God, if you're saved, that means He is with you now. That's cause for great thanksgiving the angels are envious of what we have by way of the holy spirit satan can't touch us even if he does we just go home christian life is lived in the name and works of christ so i want to ask you guys this question turn with me to matthew 15:8 matthew 15:8 and as I ask these questions again I, I'm just praying even now I pray this week insight to a pastor's mind and heart it's always a it's always a great joy to be up here it's always a great joy to read the word of God and exposit it reason being we preach this to ourselves before you hear even a an ounce of it and oftentimes to our wives first and then you guys so it's always a joy but it always carries a great weight as well a great conviction so again the question I'm posing to you are you alive in Christ how do you know and maybe a quick answer for you And if it is, praise God. I'm thankful that that is the case. It may take some pondering. And if it is, praise God. I'm thankful that is the case. And it may lead you to a different answer than you had when you walked in here. And if that's the case, praise God. Repent and believe in the true gospel of hope. So I don't want to come off as the bad guy for posing these questions nor do I want you to think I'm attacking you but if the spirit is stirring in you please submit to him and allow him to the gospel the knowledge of it that we are sinful and God is holy and that requires payment and it came by way of a perfect savior named Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life suffered everything we endured today even more than we ever could and then died the death that our disobedience warrants on the cross the gospel a loving God who's perfect and holy died for his sinful creation who denounced them time and time again and graciously pulls them back from themselves even after they have a new heart that knowledge might be in your mind But has it renewed your mind? It might be in your head. It might rattle around. But has it renewed your mind? The excitement that comes with something greater than yourself might make your heart flutter. But has the truth of God renewed your heart? Hearing the stories of Scripture might make it be faster. It might make it tremble. has it given you a new heart? Coming here, being a part of the friend groups you're a part of, and being able to take out some good news to people who are hurting, might make you feel alive. It might be a rush. But has it raised you to newness of life? No, the reason I have to, have to, in light of biblical wisdom and, and my conscience being bound to it, pose this is because of Matthew fifteen eight. This is Christ's words. Matthew 15, I'll start at verse 7 for context. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. To me, this is the scariest verse in Scripture. Because it precedes what God will say to those who think they know Him and don't. Just depart from me. I have to call your mind to attention and invite you to sit and answer the question. Are you alive in Christ? How do you know? Again, the answer may be quick, If it is, leave with more courage than you came in with. Walk more confidently. Understand you've been ordered to do so, and that's a great relief. You don't have to go around thinking about what you should or should not do. And you're also free in secondary issues, like what color to paint your wall. A faithful pastor of old said that the list of no's God gives his church are lost in the seas of yeses means we are far more free to enjoy God, but we may not be aware of it because we just look at what we're not allowed to do for our own good. And I have to add a question. This, are you alive in Christ? How does your life show it? Truly, how does your life show it? Now, if the knee-jerk answer is not, I'm eternally thankful unto God, no matter what comes my way. I'm not saying you're not saved. But I am saying you must examine yourself. And we're free to do so. We're allowed to. Because on the other side of that examination may be salvation. The Christian life is marked by giving thanks always, not just occasional gratitude unto God. Christian life is lived to God the Father, not just doing things for ourselves, acknowledging Him. And Christian life is lived in the name and works of Christ, not in His name by our works, nor is it in our name. So solemn, yes, Scripture will bring us there sometimes. Simple invitation is to examine yourself and ask the Lord to examine your heart and to sit and consider those questions. If you know in your heart of hearts that you know that you know God, then leave more confident and that will lead you to increase courage. If you are not so sure, talk to a brother or sister. And I want to be very clear about this. And this is a glimpse into how the Lord saved me. I grew up under their roof, uh, Jennifer and Pastor Brian. And we would always be in church. I had the blessing of seeing my dad saved after a series of mission trips and said we truly, truly reap the benefits of of a Christian household. And I was still going to church. I was on the youth leadership team and was doing the christian things. And the problem is my life mar- was not marked with thanksgiving. I had occasional gratitude. I had the occasional prayer asking for help or praising God, but it was hollow. But I want to be clear it was not in vain. you know any of my story, uh, it's filled with physical uh, injuries, not ailments, it's too dramatic, the Lord broke me physically, broke me into himself spiritually, couldn't play football anymore, didn't know if I'd get to play again, so I sat on the front pew of a youth retreat that was called sex camp, because you're going into your freshman year naturally in a Southern Baptist church, that's the time you get the talk from the church if you haven't got it from your pops, you talk about sex. The Lord broke me and helped me realize I didn't have a single hope. But the problem was I had grown up in church and I knew the right answers and I knew what to say. But in that moment I couldn't say anything. But the thoughts were swirling. I'm a fraud. I can't tell somebody. I've been giving the folks next to me advice on how to worship. I've been talking about God. I've been reading about Him. The fear was that it was all in vain. Now, little did I realize in that moment, and it took till the 24th year prepping for this, none of it was in vain. Was it true worship? Absolutely not. Did I know God? Only as much as my sinful neighbor. About as much as maybe the Pharisees. Was I living a life marked by thanksgiving to God? I didn't have the resources to. None of that was in vain. It was all so God could save me. So, again, in prepping for this, I didn't, just so you guys know, didn't prep with this, with any of you who are church members in mind. I mean, in mind as far as praying for you goes, but it's not like this is a attack on any of you. It's a bound conscience that is telling you, if you have been striving after God without God, If you've been close enough to him to enjoy the feeling of him, yet not the relationship of him. If you find that you thought you were walking with him, but have actually been far off, today is the day to repent and believe, knowing that nothing in the past has been in vain. It would be far worse to carry on a charade that will only hurt you. And you have the ability and where you're sitting with a church family like I did then that will comfort you that this is new life in Christ, not a cause for hopelessness. Scripture is clear in Revelation. Those who are without Christ in Revelation 21.8, their lot is the lake of fire that is coming. And folks are feeling the heat of that now. That's why they're burning down buildings. That's why they're murdering in the womb and outside. That's why they're okay with it. In the same way, if we are alive in Christ and we know where we're going, we will begin to feel the press of that eternal weight of glory. So in all of this, the undertone of this sermon is the effectual grace of God meaning it will change your life. doesn't mean you'll have a, a smile plastered on your face. If anything, it may mean you collect more calluses on your hands. Your knees may be marked by bending in prayer. And it means your life will be changed. It means it will look different. It doesn't mean you climb higher on the ladder that the world is using. It means you sink deeper into thanksgiving for who God So, if you know that you know you are alive in Christ today, leave more confidently. Leave rejoicing all the more. If you are unsure, be willing and have the courage to talk with a brother or sister. And be okay knowing that the worst potential outcome is you don't get to live for yourself anymore. You live in freedom in Christ. And if you're already at that point, please talk to one of us or talk to a member of your DNA. And just don't carry on in death. Repent and believe. Receive the new heart that Christ is giving you. Receive the new mind that he is granting you. It comes along with true breath of life in your lungs and purpose for living. By his glory and for his glory. Amen. We're not going to enter right into worship through song. Just sit and think wherever you fall on that. Go where you must. But we'll come back up in about five to seven minutes and close in worship through song. I just want to give this time. It's not to be a peaky thing. This isn't a youth group thing. This isn't necessary. I feel like wherever you are, you may not be able to jump straight into worship through song. So our worship team is going to come up here again in about five to seven minutes and lead us to worship through song. I would highly encourage you to do what the Lord is making you do. And please allow us to celebrate with you if that's the call to turn from yourself and to Christ. Father, be with us as you have been this whole time, as you are always. We know that you hold your people so carefully. You paid for our transgressions. You have covered our sins. That at no point in our life, even in biblical wisdom, has it begun with where we are in our efforts to get to you. The theme of Christian life has always been you coming to us. And replacing what was old with what's new. So for those who are alive, and you as your sons and daughters are, and perhaps just need to shake the dust that can accumulate, I pray the gospel would fall new this morning. Not in hearing it presented a new way, not in having a new thought about it, but the fact that your mercy is new. And that warrants something from us. For your children, I pray they would be more courageous and confident in you as their Savior. That they would spend less time looking at themselves and more time with their eyes fixed on you. And for the rest, God, those who are wondering... And those who may realize they are lost without you, that life has been nothing but a, a string of occasional gratitude of highs mixed with lows, of experiencing you. God, for all of us, I pray that we would understand that your grace, yes, absolutely should be experienced. But salvation is rooted in the effects that it has. And that is a life that is marked by thanksgiving through tears, through smiles, and through cries and songs. That no matter what comes our way, there is always cause for thanksgiving because of the new life you've given us. So I pray for those who are listening now, who may listen later, who may hear the condensed version of this from a church member that you would give them the grace the knowledge to know that true life is made real to them today they would repent and turn from the nothingness of themselves in the world and find everything on the cross and at your right hand today in Christ be with us as we reflect before we finish our time together in worshiping through song we ask all this in Christ's name yeah,